David Attenborough's filmmaking brother, Dickie, made a biopic on Chaplin and uh, the opening scene takes us backstage at a theatre in London where a very voluptuous woman covered in spangles is mustering, would you believe, a herd of seals onto the stage where they're going to balance balls on their noses. That woman was my grandmother. Now, Chaplin, her co-star in that musical, would shortly become the most famous man on earth thanks to the miracle of the silent movie. And Grandma also went into the movie business. She started hand-painting with little tiny brushes and watercolours, hand-painting black-and-white silent film. So, as you can see, I was destined, doomed to get into the movie side of show business. But today we're going to go back even earlier in the history of movies, back before the Lumiere brothers, back before Thomas Edison. And we're going to meet the bloke who really did make the first film. My next guest, film producer, author and screenwriter Paul Fisher, has rewound the spool of film history and discovered this bloke who should be credited as the forgotten father of cinema. He vanished off the face of the earth in 1890 and was wiped from the Film Hall of Fame. Paul joins us now, all the way from Edmonton in Canada, to talk about his intriguing new book, The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, a true tale of obsession, murder and the movies. Paul, welcome to our little wireless program. Let me begin by asking, what made you delve into the cinema archives and attempt to rewrite film history? Hello. Thank you for that introduction. That was lovely. Um, that's a very good question. I have been fascinated with film history for a very long time and actually started from a place like most people of not ever having heard of Louis Le Prince, even though I grew up in France and was quite obsessed with that period in time. But his name came up in a book sort of anecdotally that I'd been reading. He was only mentioned on one page. Um, and a character in this novel mentions that there was a man called Louis Le Prince who made films years before the Lumiere brothers, but who had disappeared in mysterious circumstances in what, you know, was one of still one of the great unsolved Victorian mysteries. And there was something about that mention that sounded real. So I remember looking it up thinking, I don't know if this Louis Le Prince person is real or false, but this sounds very real, but I've never heard of him. And it turned out that Le Prince had existed. And what was very, very intriguing to me from the start was that not only had he existed, but his films survived. And his films, by a, an odd quirk of fate, could be dated very precisely to have been made seven years before the Lumiere brothers. Thanks, thanks to you, I've had a look at a fragment of his film and mm. it is absolutely astonishing. And of course, it deals a terrible blow to the myth that there was the eureka moment when uh, Louis Lumiere was lying in bed last night with a terrible migraine and suddenly conceived cinema. It shatters the whole myth. And, and that was the thing to me. I've, I had never heard of this guy who had existed, the films existed, the machines still existed in a museum. He held the patents. And as the story said, you know, shot these films, got this paperwork approved, and then disappeared, boarded a train one day in France and vanished off the face of the earth before he could make this 
invention public. It's interesting that he boarded a train to Venice because, of course, famously, the audience was sent shrieking out of the room when they saw a filmed locomotive rushing towards them from the screen. And that was the uh, that 50-second clip, the arrival of the train. Yes, another myth, it turns out, because that wasn't at that, the first Lumiere screening. But there was all these great motifs like that that played into the story. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized this was about the prince, obviously, and about the history of cinema, but also a really interesting way to unpack how we learn the history of innovation and how it's written. And, and in a sense, a lot of history is storytelling and to some degree nationalistic propaganda. Well, talking, we talking about nationalistic propaganda, the Lumiere mm -hmm. brothers, as you point out, are emblems of French national pride, as is or was Thomas Edison, who first sold tickets to view moving pictures in a peep show in 1894. That's right. But he announced his machines in 1891, just a few months after Le Prince disappeared. And one of the great twists in the story is that Le Prince's family, his widow and his children, became convinced that Edison hadn't just stolen Louis Le Prince's ideas, which Edison was known even then to do, to steal people's ideas or, or copy their patents, but that he may have been involved in his disappearance as well. Tell us a little bit about uh, Louis Le Prince's uh, background. From whence did he come? He was fascinating. He was born in Metz, which is in the east of France, in 1841. And he had a very sort of peripatetic, improvised life, um, as it were. He was middle class from a military family and kind of had interests in the arts. He painted and worked for painters for a little while, but also in science. And he went to university to study optics and chemistry. And he was very much like one of those people at the end of the Victorian era who were trying to combine artistic pursuits with technological development. And he'd been a veteran. He'd been in the siege of Paris. Um, he eventually worked in entertainment. And as a technical draftsman, um, his wife was from a family of industrialists who owned an iron forge in England. And so he had this very diverse, versatile background. Freeze the frame for a second. I want you sure. to tell me a little bit more about Lizzie Whitley, who we met in Paris. Lizzie Whitley, exactly, Elizabeth, um, who we met in Paris, who had studied um, in the same studio at the same time as Auguste Rodin, and she wanted to be a sculptor and artist. Um, and they fell in love in Paris and moved back to Yorkshire in England, where she was from, where Louis started working for her family's um, iron forge. And that's where he kind of discovered this whole world of, of patents and, and this idea that you can invent something that would change your fortune, that could really lift your family to a whole other social level. I like the way you say of him, Le Prince was a tinkerer, fascinated yep. with the new scientific theories that attempted to explain how the world worked, and he started learning that patents could be a way of earning a living. Yes, which was very key at the time, this idea suddenly that if you came up with something new, that that could make your fortune overnight. And he existed, or wanted to exist, at a meeting point of art and technology. Yes, which I think is really, you know, relevant to the idea of the birth of, of cinema, because it's the, it's the odd thing, motion pictures, when we talk about it as a medium, we kind of confuse talking about it as a, as a technological invention and also as an artistic medium. It kind of bleeds over and, and overlaps. And as someone once said, it's the only art form we have where you can date, you know, the first time somebody made 
one of that art form. We can't date the first time somebody picked up a pen and wrote. We can't date the first bit of music. But we can date very exactly when film began because it's both technology and artistic expression. And we can also date the beginning of photography because at this time it was only 40 years old and still, well, imperfect. Very much imperfect. And Le Prince was inspired by photography as a child. He had known Louis Daguerre, who was one of the inventors of the medium. And part of the struggle in inventing motion pictures was that people like Le Prince could see what the technology should be. It was essentially photography at very high speed, um, both in the taking and in the replaying. But the technology itself had to catch up. People were taking pictures on glass plates, you know, with, with very little light and they couldn't move in front of the camera. And so it was almost kind of like inventing moving photography before still photography had really matured, which was part of the challenge. Now, his father-in-law, Joseph, uh, played a significant part here because he'd brought his grandkids one of those magic lanterns. He did. So the moment Le Prince sort of came to think about motion pictures, which he called the spark, um, according to his wife, was a combination of two things. Was him, as you were saying, experimenting with photography. And one day in his, in his little shed um, lab, handling two pictures, two frames, and them slipping in his hand and superimposing and looking like the figure in the two frames was moving. That was the first part of it. And the second part of it was using this magic lantern, which was really just a slideshow, a crudely animated slideshow um, for his kids in the evenings. Um, magic lanterns at the time being a hugely popular Christmas gift for families in England. And him sort of working out that oh, if I could do something like a magic lantern, but not with slides, but with this thing I accidentally witnessed in my workshop of photographs moving together, then I've got something completely new. There's another spark which involves uh, the fact that he'd come up with a, a way of firing f- photographs onto porcelain plates so he could make commemorative plates featuring the likes of Queen Victoria. Yes. And that's the part of him that was a tinkerer. He'd tried things before and he was quite popular in Yorkshire for these things, this combination of kind of kiln pottery and photography, um, where he was one of the first people to create, you know, if anybody imagines a coronation plate or a coronation tea set, he was doing that kind of thing in the 1870s. And film was just an extension of that, that he was someone who was continually putting to work these different interests he had from painting to engineering to pottery to photography and chemistry to see what he could come up with that was new and different and and not done before. But you also point out that he'd never designed or invented a machine of any kind in his life, and here he is having a crack at a camera. Yes, and, and, and he was obsessive about it. And he's a fascinating figure in that sense that this was kind of very much beyond his reach. And he put his whole family's fortunes on the line and his reputation on the line. And at times when you read the correspondence, it feels like his, his sort of sanity on the line, that this spark, this vision he'd had took over his life and, and he was evangelical about it. And he was of that generation, you know, Thomas Edison, who, who lived and worked at the same time, was the first of a new kind of generation where 
inventing things was a profession where people did that for a living and were trained in doing it and they were engineers and, and that sort of thing. His camera, you describe as a heavy box of Honduras mahogany balanced on four legs, even that's interesting, four, which uh, rattled like a machine gun. The simple fact is, however, that the, the, it's essentially the same as a modern film camera, as the, say, the Studio Mitchell, which was used to make the majority of movies for decades recognizably the same. It's the first device you can look at and, and kind of open the cabinet, look inside and go, okay, this is a film camera. I recognize this. You know, it's the, essentially the same basic workings as a 16 millimeter camera someone would have used in the 70s. And in fact, there were engineers in Yorkshire just a few years ago who created an exact replica of Le Prince's single lens camera and ran modern film through it. And it worked exactly as you expect it would, and was able to take film, and it works on the same principles as any film camera. I mentioned my grandmother hand-painting 12 mm. frames per second. Now, that is the speed that uh, he chose for his uh, device. It is in part, I think, because it's the speed, the, the highest speed he could achieve, really. His son has some ratings where he suggests they were aiming for 14, 15, 16. Um, but 12 is the most they could do. As you say, this was a humongous camera, very heavy, hence the four legs. Sometimes they had to add an extra weight as ballast to those four legs because the gearing that moved the film through the camera was heavy and rattly. And so they were able to achieve somewhere between 10 and 12 frames per second for the films that survived. And he had actually Le Prince, who was evangelical about the medium. He had dreams of oh, one day we'll hand paint these pictures and they'll be in color and we can show life in the colors that it is. And he foresaw those kinds of developments as well. Well, of course, later the speed would go up to 24 frames for sound films and in some cases for things like IMAX it can go up to 60 frames. But at 12 images per second, we are fooled into thinking the picture is alive. There's something that people were aware of then that Le Prince had learned about the university called persistence of vision really, which is this idea that your eye fills in the gaps between images that are similar enough to stitch them together into movement, to make that information logical. And no one knew really exactly how many frames per second were necessary for that to work. And even at you know, 12, 16, 18 frames per second, there's a bit of work your brain has to do. That's why a lot of those early silent films look juddery to us. Um, but to the Victorian audience, they looked as close to real life as you can imagine. Of course, philosophically to them, motion animation was the soul, was life, was you know really capturing time and harnessing it and replaying it. I'm talking to Paul Fisher about Louis Le Prince, the forgotten father of film. The book is The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, A True Tale of Obsession, Murder and the Movies. We're going to get on to the possibility of murder shortly, but uh, first, tell the listener about that uh, two-second sequence I recently watched at your behest. Yeah, it's quite easy to find if anybody wants to look it up. It's called The Round Hay Garden Scene, is what most people call it now, and it's the oldest surviving motion picture we have. Um, and it was taken by Le Prince in October of 1888. And it can be dated quite precisely because of letters written around it and because one of the people in it died soon after it was taken. And it's two seconds because two seconds survive because of the, the ravages of time. Um, but the markings on the film suggest the original was much longer. 
And it's very much like a home movie. It's it's the prince's, you know, in-laws and a family friend and his son doing silly walks in in the garden of their family home in Yorkshire. And it's very, very short, but it's brilliant because the movement works and the quality is great and you can get a sense of these people's personality. And it has, in many ways, that thing that makes film so magical, which is that it's very vivid and realistic, but undeniably ghostly um, at the same time. Well, that ghostly thing, it's always seemed to me that film made ghosts real. Meanwhile, talking about ghosts across the Atlantic, Thomas Edison, what was he up to? Edison was in an interesting place at this time. We're talking sort of late 1880s, as I said. Um, and he was hugely famous um, and, and extremely rich and successful, but he was also in a fallow period and he hadn't invented anything great for several years. And there was actually an atmosphere at the time that people made fun of Thomas Edison um, for over-promising things that he couldn't deliver. And you read these old newspapers and it's a bit, you know, if you can imagine the way people make jokes now about and Elon Musk, you know, tunnel not working, a monorail not working. People are making fun of Thomas Edison in very much the same ways. Well, you compare um, him to Steve Jobs. Very much so to me, you know, in the sense that he was someone who had kind of lost touch with the actual work of inventing. You had people working for him who did that day-to-day work, but he had become a brand. And in very much the way that Steve Jobs, you know, had his uniform, the turtleneck and, and, and the jeans, Thomas Edison had his work coat and his disheveled hair and his cigar. In the same way that Steve Jobs made presentations about the future, Thomas Edison would give a regular interview to the Sun or the the Scientific American and say what was coming up next. And he was very much a brand to be managed, but he was also a brand that needed. One of the foundation myths of Hollywood is that filmmakers had to flee New York because Edison was such a thug and such a bully when they were making their local movies. That's right, which Le Prince, um, or his family at least, played into that story. There were court cases in the end where Edison, by hook or by crook, established himself as not just the inventor of a film camera, but the whole medium, and started suing everybody in New York, which was the home of movies at the time, um, if they didn't pay, you know, kind of tribute financially to his company. And so, so independent filmmakers thought, well, where's the furthest we can go where things are cheap and where people don't care that much about intellectual property law, and that turned out to be California. Let's go back to Le Prince. He's captured action on film, but he hasn't perfected a way of projecting his film. What happens? What happens next is essentially somebody else comes up with a great invention first. Um, George Eastman of Eastman Kodak starts marketing this flexible film, what we think of when we think film, the kind of ribbons. And because that film was strong, but also flexible, and you can run it through a roll, suddenly it seemed Le Prince had ways to project the film without either his paper film or his glass film breaking, catching fire, ripping, all these things. And so there are letters and correspondence and diaries where he and his collaborators and Joseph Whitley, his father-in-law, say, he's done it, he's figured it out. And so Le Prince tasks his wife in New York to, to rent out a mansion as a venue to show films publicly for the first time. He tells his associates, pack up the stuff. I'm going to sail to New York. I just have to go to France first to see my brother and sort out a family inheritance and and all this stuff before I leave halfway across the world. And he goes to France, spends a weekend with his brother and his nieces and nephew. um, And they see him off on the train back to Paris. And 
some English friends he was traveling with were meant to meet him back in Paris to go to England and then on to America. And as it's recorded by his brother and his, his niece, at some point between boarding the train in the south of France and the train arriving in Paris, uh, Le Prince disappears, um, never to be heard of again. When did uh, his wife, Lizzie, become obsessed with the idea that Edison had had him murdered? Well, one of the fascinating things about this is because of the geography and the technology, it was weeks before anybody realized he'd gone missing because he, he gets on this train or he's seen getting on this train and then he doesn't arrive at the other end. And because there's no, you know, there were telephones, but it wasn't common to use and it was easier to kind of not communicate. Lizzie is in New York and thinks, okay, he must be on his way. I haven't heard from him. And Louis's brother is in France and thinks, well, he's gone off on the train, so he's on his way to America. And his friends in Paris don't see him come off the train, so they assume, okay, he must have stayed back in the south of France for a little while. That happens. He'll catch up later. And so it's several weeks before Lizzie writes back to Europe and says, hey, you know, essentially, look, Louis hasn't answered a letter in three weeks, and he usually answers every week. And everybody kind of goes, oh, I thought he was with you, and I thought he was with you. And so it's kind of a cold case when it starts. And so there's a lot of desperation. But very soon after this happens... Lizzie is in the throes of this panic about her husband disappearing and coming out of the blue and having no clues. And suddenly the front page of one of the New York newspapers announces that Thomas Edison has invented this brilliant new thing, a film camera and projector that captures life, et cetera, et cetera. And as Lizzie is reading it, it sounds exactly like what Louis was working on now, um, and was about to make a fortune from. Now she, and did make a fortune from now, Edison, you know, finishes up a titan as a result of this. But you completely discount the Edison as murder theory. You say the way Edison worked was to destroy his competitors by filing caveats. Yes, caveats being a weird sort of pre-patent they had for a while where you could essentially say, I haven't invented this thing, but I'm thinking of inventing this thing. And if somebody else invents <laughs> this thing... I'm allowed to have a, a year or however long it was to, to file my own patent. And if you accept it, then that becomes the official one. And Edison, because he had a fortune behind him, because he had lawyers, he would literally have employees bring him copies of every pre-patent or patent or interview or technical description written anywhere and just file hundreds of these caveats, hundreds of things laying claim to huge areas of technology he'd never thought about, let alone work on. Just saying, I might look at this someday. And so if somebody actually filed a patent to um, invent something, then the patent office would send Edison a message or a letter or a cable saying, someone has you know, activated your caveat number, whatever. And Edison would then have a year and the information from the patent somebody else had filed to create his own copy. So, so if, if Edison didn't need to kill the prince, what are the other possibilities? Well, the possibilities, as I knew them when I came to this, essentially were that someone closer to the prince had eliminated him either through quarrel or need for money because there were quite a few people, including his brother-in-law, John Whitley, um, who might have been in need of money at the time. There is the possibility that he was assaulted or killed or mugged or kidnapped in Paris, which was kind of rife with street crime at the time. Um, and it was common for people to pull bodies out of the Seine quite regularly. One theory is that Le Prince didn't actually disappear, but made himself disappear. 
that his work was going very badly and he was out of money. And so he decided to either by dying by suicide or by running away and starting a new life to make himself disappear. And finally, there's a possibility that another competitor who wasn't Edison um, may have been involved in doing what Le Prince's family accused Edison of doing, which was eliminate the rival. Now, I know that you uh, take this further in the book, but understandably, mm. you're reluctant to be a spoiler. So uh, what I'll do instead is ask you what happened in cinema history after his disappearance by foul means. Well, one fascinating thing about his disappearance is at least at the time in law, if somebody went missing, if, if a body wasn't found and they couldn't be declared dead, then all of their property, including intellectual property, was frozen for seven years or until a body was found, whichever happened soonest. And so in Le Prince's case, for seven years, his family couldn't exploit his patents and couldn't present this machine and couldn't license it and couldn't make money from it. And in the intervening seven years, Thomas Edison comes out with his kinetoscope and kinetograph and makes a fortune. The Lumiere brothers come out with their cinematograph and make a fortune. And in a weird, ironic twist of fate, by the time Lizzie is able to sign you know, the deed and take over the prince's property, the race has been run, really. You sound insane if after seven years you go, oh, well, my dad actually invented movies, but he disappeared and I couldn't do anything about it for a decade. No one believed them. And so he essentially was entirely forgotten and over time became, you know, one of those names that either people didn't know at all or the people who did campaign for him sounded like they were campaigning for some urban legend, that there must have been some reason why no one remembered him. Because if he really had these patents and if he really had made these films, then people would know him. You know, you also describe someone who was a genuine visionary, not only in... Uh in cinema, but I like his sort of uh, idealism. You point out that he worked with deaf kids and believed that motion pictures could be used as a teaching tool. I felt a real kinship with that, with that kind of, you know, I, idealism is the right word. It's almost bordering on naivete in a Victorian sense. They had a very Victorian middle-class artistic sense and bent that progress went in the right direction. And technological invention and communication could only make things better for everyone. And so originally, one of the first things he wanted to do with film was use it as a way to visually educate children who were deaf or mute or had other different abilities because they wouldn't have to use books or Braille or he could popularize sign language and that kind of thing. And he would, you know, at a time when people like Edison... And the Lumiere brothers talked about this thing as a gimmick or a toy or something people would get bored of. Le Prince really spoke of film as something that we can use to entertain and educate and it'll get rid of superstition and it will end war because we'll see how other people live. And he was a real believer in the power of it and not just the eventual success of it. On that uplifting note, I thank you for your time, Paul. I've been talking thank to you. Paul Fisher, author, film producer and screenwriter. The book is The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, a true tale of obsession, murder and the movies, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks a lot. Good on you, Paul. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.